Do food cravings come from experience? Are we born with them? Both? Does it matter? Do cravings serve a fundamental purpose? If we crave something, does that mean our bodies have a deficiency? In this episode, the good Dr. Kashi continues discussing the psychology and physiology of cravings, as well as busting some common craving myths. Roll the intro! Good morning, everybody. Good day, and welcome to another episode of <sighs> Coffee with Kashi. And I'm your host. Dr. Trevor Cashing. Today we are doing the the second portion of Dr. Cashy's Soft Science of Hard Cravings. Do a little bit of a recap of what we spoke about last time, but it is super easy to rant on this stuff, so I'm going to I'm going to try and keep it <laughs> try, try and keep it down a little bit short here, okay? So, again, my disclaimer of of all of this is that this is a relatively pseudoscientific, cherry-picked, heavily biased, brutally modified, but empirically and anecdotally informed narrative review of food craving psychology. <laughs> okay? And again, each one of these points could be its own video article slash book slash course in its own right, and I might be doing something like that right now. Uh, take it with a grain of salt, though, to inform your decisions based on food cravings using my bias or not. <laughs> and again, to make sure we are all on the same page here, let us define our terms. Okay? And in the context of what I'm talking about in terms of food cravings, a food craving is, like we have discussed in the previous episode, is an urge to eat a food you probably like. Although the, the liking of a food, although connected to a craving, is a completely optional component of the craving mechanism, which I think is fun. So very short review of the pertinent points from the last episode is that you can have cravings with zero hunger. And you can have hunger with zero cravings. And that the distribution of cravings is similar to that of the distribution with, with phobias. Uh, minor phobias, as it were, between 20 and 30% of people have phobias. And, and I would say about that many people have a craving at any given time. And the same thing happens with extreme cravings slash extreme phobias, about 1%. Okay? And then acting on those things can have some interesting consequences for people. Right? So I do think that you can, craving is, is, is on a continuum, just like fears are. You can have zero craving or 100 craving and anywhere in between as you see fit, which I think is fun. Now, going into the, the stereotypical side of cravings, I do think that chocolate is the most commonly referred to craving because of it is ubiquity around the, the world and in the countries that all of these experiments were done in, uh, chocolate was described as half, <laughs> about half of all the listed cravings. And I think, again, that's because there's, it's a ubiquitous around the world. And there are a few cultural components associated with chocolate. And there's so many different kinds of chocolate, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Go look at the last video for all that information. <laughs> uh, and in turn, uh, the, the interesting phenomenon of the craving of chocolate and or uh, similar foods, perimenstrual situations. Okay, so before, during, and after menstruation, there's definitely changes in reported food cravings. And it is very easy to say, well, this is because my hormones are doing the flap doodle do. However, the interesting part of this is that a little bit more evidence points towards this being a learned and cultural behavior because those cravings remain after, um, after menstruation has ceased. Okay, during menopause and postmenopause, those cravings remain. And so again, more in depth in that in version one. And the next part was about food, the effects of food cravings and restriction, and that if you are physically restricted, that 
your desire to eat overall actually goes down. And this has been shown over and over in very low calorie ketogenic, all sorts of other diets like that, where the less you eat, actually the, the, the less you want to eat. Uh, and this has to do with more physical restriction. But if you are mentally restricted, if you are mentally restricted up here, then your desire for certain foods goes up dramatically. And that also increases your chances of rebound overfeeding on the foods that you crave. And so this, from a, from a coaching standpoint, kind of gives us some information of, well, maybe you should include the foods you like to eat <laughs> uh, while you are going through a weight loss or fat loss phase so that your chances of rebound overfeeding are much lower and that your cravings are controlled because cravings associated with restriction are also a learned behavior. Where if you teach yourself that whenever you want to go for a goal, so to speak, solve a problem, lose some, lose some fat. If you have to cut out all of the things in your life that you like, well, then you start obsessing over those things. And then you start having this weird connection. Well, if I want to be better, I also have to hate my life. And then that again, causes this strange restriction, disinhibition patterning, which leads to, you know, other behavioral and emotional outcomes that need some damage control of their own. Okay. Again, explain that further depth, the, the last video. And so really the, the more you restrict what you do, the more you restrict what you do, the more you teach yourself that you need to be without that thing to get to the, to get to the end of the road, so to speak. And so that is something that you do teach yourself, which means that's good. You can teach yourself something else. And that is where the coaching component, self-coaching or external coaching component comes into play. Okay. So now I want to move on to those. That was our super, super fast wrap up slash summary of the last episode to kind of give us some more context for this one. And I want to talk about cravings and disordered eating, okay? And when it comes to cravings, since we know that, well, if you restrict it, then you crave whatever the foods. If you restrict the foods that you crave, well, then you crave those foods more. And now I want to talk about the learned, the essential, essentially the learned medicinal use of foods and how that impacts the cravings that we have. And it's that mood it definitely has an influence on binge eating in people with disordered eating patterns. This is very important, okay? This means that if you have a, a so-called mood disturbance, if your mood is feeling ugly, and as we have also seen, if your mood is extremely high and happy and good and celebratory, that you're actually more likely to show loss of control, what's called loss of control eating behavior during emotional stress. And I also want to stress to you that emotional stress could be positive or negative emotional distress. That's how I view it because the physiology of an extreme mood is the same, but your perception is different. And so your body responds similarly if it is an extremely arousing positive experience or an extremely arousing negative experience, the body responds more or less the same way. And so the loss of control eating behaviors are seen in both, where extreme celebrations you feast. It's just more socially acceptable. And when you have an ugly mood disturbance, you are most likely to socially isolate and then overconsume that way, unless of course you include commiseration in that where you gather around other people and uh, everybody knows, <laughs> everybody's had that sort of pity party, so to speak, okay? Um, I do wanna say that food cravings that led to binges, so if, if you're in an ugly mood and then that has you crave a food and then you eat that food, that was also associated with higher stress levels and a poorer mood post binge. So if you have a craving and then you overeat on that food you are craving while you feel bad, then you feel worse. Uh, and that is something that is repeatable in an experimental setting. Uh, uh, insofar as if you, if you give in to the craving and then you put learning points into that habit loop, then 
your mood and stress get worse after overeating on that thing that you were otherwise restricting because that kind of that also compounds some ugliness in terms of your ability to i guess really put yourself first and stay true to yourself among other things okay I do want to say that food cravings and normal meal patterns are inversely correlated. This is a very strong and important thing to understand. It's that people who eat regular foods regularly on a regular basis, they're craving, they, they crave fewer things and they crave them less often. So meal patterns, if they are standardized for you and meal, meal choices and food choices, if they are standardized for you, then your overall food cravings will go down. Food cravings are highest in people that have irregular food choices, irregular meal patternings, and irregular intake day-to-day uh, -day in terms of calories. So the more irregular you are, the more random you are with your food choices, the amounts of food you eat, and when you eat, the more likely you will have cravings that also lead to overeating, which I think is interesting. So this is pointing us in the right direction in terms of how do you structure your day to make it so everything is stacked in your favor, okay? Uh, now, if you do have a mood, negative mood disturbance and another distraction technique is employed in lieu of binging, then there's a relative mood improvement. And this is something that I definitely teach on a daily basis with the clients we have at TKN is that we teach all sorts of methods and distraction techniques that are carbon neutral slash carbon negative, uh, that when, it, when you have a negative mood disturbance and then a craving strikes, and then that, that sort of love triangle forms with using food in a medicinal way to distract yourself from a temporary negative feeling that we start to take that so-called learning loop and we keep the learning loop alive, we just replace the behavior with something else. And so the amount of change that is required to put yourself on a better path for you is actually far less than trying to unlearn things. <laughs> so you can take the things you currently learn and do a couple swap-a-doodles and your life ends up becoming much easier because you, you actually retain some of the benefits of behavior change while, able, while, while also being able to maintain similar thought patterns you had before, which it, from uh, an economy of you know, cognitive RAM standpoint is pretty high, okay? Now, I do want to say that uh, if you have a mood disturbance and then you do have a craving, people that do report this, it's actually inversely correlated with hunger. And this is a very important thing to consider. Also, because when you are stressed out in a healthy environment, bodily like psychological stress does lead to bodily stress and that means your stress hormones go up which means from a physiological standpoint your hunger goes down and so it's actually more reasonable to fast and forego eating when very stressed out than it is to eat when you are stressed out and eating while stressed out is a learned behavior and so when you start to look at the data, what ends up happening is that if a person is very stressed out their hunger is low but their cravings are high and then they end up eating even though their hunger levels are low because of the mood disturbance. The stress response is inherently anorectic, which is a fancy way of saying, if something stresses you out and your, your fight or flight response goes up, well then hunger goes down. And that is something that is seen across basically all vertebrates with brains, <laughs> uh, humans included, unless there is something from a third party perspective that then teaches you to eat during a stressed out state, which is good. It can feel like, man, like this is what I have to do. This is how it's always been. But you learned it from somewhere, and that means that you can learn something else in its place, which is very powerful, I think. Uh, you are, again, less likely to be hungry when you're stressed out, even though if you're a restrained eater, you're more likely to have loss of control eating event. So if you're constantly restricting yourself psychologically, then 
if you're restricted psychologically and then you have a negative mood episode, then that also further stacks the cards in the favor of a loss of control eating event associated with a craving. And so if you are restricted and in a negative mood and you want to start using food from a medicinal standpoint, that's when things start to become ugly and being aware of that gives you the opportunity between stimulus and response to start swapping some of those behaviors out. And again, behind the scenes with us, we have we have tactics to try and streamline and lubricate that process um, a little bit better than trying to like figure things out, I suppose. Um, I do want to say too that dietary restriction precedes the urge to binge, but that's different than being a requirement of binging behavior, okay? This means that although chronic psychological dieters restrict foods that they like and then start focusing more on those foods and they're more likely to consume them when they have a loss of control eating event that even a person who is otherwise a normal eater okay is still susceptible to binge style behaviors during a, during a mood disturbance so it's easy to say, well, like, of course you're, you're freaking out and you're eating everything in sight. You've been dieting all this time and then you had a crappy day and now you're going to town on everything. Well, a lot of data also shows that people who, <laughs> people who otherwise eat normally also have binging behaviors associated with negative mood disturbances. It is just more prevalent and more violent in people who are psychologically restrained eaters, which is kind of cool. Everybody, everybody kind of does it to some degree, all right? Now, in terms of a functional view of binge eating, uh, it is it is an emotionally regulating behavior. That means that I feel negative, and now I'm going to consume this thing that I have positive associations with to distract myself from this thing, and then hopefully replicate the feelings that I originally have that I associated with this thing before. That is why I call it a learning experience and a learning loop that you put those points in. That is how and why it is learned. And that's why I have this whole video on special occasions, which I, I suggest you check out, at least I think it's that video, where people mark positive events with food and drink and celebration. And then when they have negative events, they use those same behaviors to mark negative events to try and replicate the feelings and distract from the negative. And so what you do when you're extremely happy is very similar to what you do when you're extremely sad. It's just one is more socially acceptable than the other. And one, you hate yourself a little bit more than the other after you do it. Something very, very important to keep in mind. All this stuff is, I think, super pertinent, okay? And uh, it is also consistent with moderate mood states associated with food cravings seen in ordered eaters, okay? This means that, again, everybody is susceptible to using food medicinally. <laughs> everybody is. It's just that a person who is a psychological restrictive, a psychologically restrictive person, it's just more likely to cause further loss of control eating events down the line and start a negative spiral. So a normal eater would be like, man, I had a crappy day. I'm going to have a bowl of ice cream and go to bed. And that, that is considered using food to help regulate mood. And in a lot of circumstances, that is, a, that is an otherwise healthy thing to do. The difference is that with a, a chronically, psychologically restricted dieter, the person says, man, I had a crappy day. I'm going to eat a bowl of ice cream. Now I ate a bowl of ice cream and I hate myself. And then that carries on to the next day. And then you have a bad day the next day. And then that's where the swirling vortex of shit comes from. Whereas a person who otherwise you know, they eat normally, they can use food medicinally as required 
And then the blowback from using food in a medicinal way is far less than a person who receives blowback uh, internally when they use food medicinally while also psychologically restraining themselves. It is, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. That happens more in psychologically restrained eaters than it does normative eaters who say like, I feel crappy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat this and feel good and then I'm gonna go to sleep and wake up and have a normal day tomorrow. That's actually a healthy way to approach things uh, for them. And some people, they operate a little bit differently. <laughs> So again, something to keep in mind that those are the, those are the main differences uh, in terms of mood regulation with food and restrained eaters versus uh, normative eaters, as it were, right? Now, I, that is as much I'm going to be ranting on that. Uh, might have to make this three-parter, but I doubt it. I'm just going to go through the rest of my notes here and see what we can accomplish. I'm going to go through some, some different sort of explanations and interesting things about cravings is that a lot of people, you see, actually see this, a lot of pseudoscientific stuff that say, like, if you're craving this, then you're low on vitamin C, and if you're craving this, and you're low on whatever. It's really convenient to think that uh, cravings are associated with nutrient deficiencies, I see it all the time. Like if you're craving this and you need this, if you're sad, you need to eat blah, blah, blah. And uh, that's convenient and it's wrong. It's just, it is, it's wrong. Because <laughs> uh, that's like saying, well, I'm craving donuts, therefore I have a donut deficiency. <sighs> and I got to tell you that cravings and nutrient requirements are definitely disconnected from each other, heavily disconnected from each other in terms of craving specific foods at least, okay? The math just doesn't add up, uh, especially because the research on cravings more or less is done on properly nourished people in developed countries. And that alone is enough data to suggest that the association with cravings and nutrient deficiencies is a farce, at least in the way that we understand it because all of the craving research is done on well-fed people. And well-fed, I mean like they're healthy. And so if, all of, if, if these billions of people effectively are feeling food cravings, but they're all also otherwise metabolically healthy, well, then there's a huge disconnect from cravings and being malnourished, okay? So that's another stressor that you can kind of kick out of your brain that if, well, if I'm craving this and I might be iron deficient or whatever, it's completely disconnected and that is also learned. It is a way to give yourself permission to eat whatever that thing is when you just eat it, you know. <laughs> uh, now, eating craved foods to intentionally regulate mood does have a long history. And that means that disordered eaters, they learn to do it. And ordered normative eaters, they learn to do it too from modeling. They watch other people do it. It's on TV. It's in advertisements. Your parents do it. You do it and your kids might see it. Right? I saw, I saw a video the other day that uh, Mrs. Cashy showed me, and it was just the cutest little girl in the world, and she was upset about something. And uh, just the cutest little girl. <laughs> and at the same time, the video broke my heart because she's crying and upset, and the, and the dad is like, well, baby, what do you want? She goes, I think peanut butter and jelly would make me feel better. And it's just the cutest thing. And, in, and on the inside, I'm, it's breaking my heart because this is literally teaching a small child to eat her feelings. And although on a one-off context, this video's got millions and millions of views because of how cute this little girl is, all I see playing in the back of my head is that this parent is unwittingly teaching his child to eat her feelings away. And that's, that starts before children can talk. What do you do when a child screams? You shove a bottle in its mouth, 
What do you do when it, it's just like the first thing is, is it fed? Is it fed? Is it fed? I'd use the term it loosely, obviously. But that sort of behavior, so many people, they have no chance. <laughs> Before they can talk, they're already taught to eat their feelings away. Obviously, I'm very passionate about this. I can talk about parenting and related things some other time, but like, just keep, you'll, you'll see it now. <laughs> you'll see it now. Uh, now that I mentioned it, I promise. And so, uh, again, during negative emotions, eating does create a distraction from temporary feelings. All right, and this is why I like to teach carbon neutral or carbon negative distraction methods. There's always something else you can do to distract yourself from the negative feeling at the time, okay? It stands to reason that some people crave and eat to negatively reinforce the mood state. I have a whole video on that too, where like I feel bad, therefore I do this thing that I did when I felt good to try and replicate that feeling. And it's attempt to reduce or distract from boredom, sadness, etc. Yes, boredom is a feeling. <laughs> and uh, ambivalence with overeating meaning like, eh, like defending the behavior of overeating is more likely to prolong than ameliorate the dysphoric mood. That's a fancy way of saying that if I feel bad and I eat because I feel bad, it will keep my, it, I'll stay feeling bad for longer. <laughs> uh, it's distracting when you eat, but ultimately it makes your bad feeling worse after you stop eating and around the merry-go-round we go, okay? And attentional bias specifically is a, is a cognitive component to describing the selective attention to food. This means that you associate whatever this food is with this mood state. And as soon as you get in that mood state, then everything, everything around you gets erased and, and it makes it easier to focus on that thing, which then makes it, easy, it, makes it more difficult to distract, your from, distract yourself from because the more you think about it, the more intense the feeling gets, okay? Bad moods make faster response times to pictures. <laughs> so in a laboratory setting, if, if you have a person in a bad mood and then you show them two pictures and one of them is, is a food and one of them is something else, like whoop, the, 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 the quicker people in bad moods, they divert their eyes to, uh, to medicinal foods much faster. And that's what I mean by cognitive attentional bias. But there's such a strong connection between the reward associated with that food or the negative reinforcement associated with that food that as soon as you are shown that picture, even if it's the picture when you're in a negative mood, attentional bias, like your, your, your mind and your body automatically divert its attention there, which I think is super cool. And uh, the direction to suppress cravings only decreases the verbalization of cravings. That means that a lot of people will, they might say, I want this cake, I want this, I want this, I want this, uh, out loud. And so it would make sense to be like, well, just stop talking about it and it'll go away. But what happens is that you just end up talking about it in your head. <laughs> and when you say things in your head, you can say them about 20 times faster. And so you're just reinforcing that loop even more. So I, like, this is, again, I'm freaking out on all this stuff. I got so much research done on this. I love it. Uh, let's see some other notes I have. Um, and I'm just going through here. Uh, okay. I think that's about what I want to cover today. I'm going to go through some conclusions again. I do have some other technical related things, but again, those are probably more useful for me than they are for you right now. So I'm going to close out all of this, uh, create like the soft science of hard cravings research that I've done uh, with all those primary source literatures, plural. And it's that food cravings are often benign, right? You crave something, but does that really mean anything to you? No. On occasion, just like extreme phobias, they can cost you, okay? And the desire to eat, is a defining component of a food craving. You want to eat it, 
I have this thing that I want to eat. Do you have to be hungry to crave it? No. Uh, the overlap between cravings and hunger and the likelihood to eat are convenient and they are sensical, but they are, they're accidentally associated. They're more coincidental than they are the rule, okay? And food cravings and acting on them are more likely when hunger is reduced, which I think is super interesting. You're more likely to give in to a craving that you have when your hunger levels are low. Why? Because when you're stressed out, the physiological response to stress is to decrease your hunger, but it increases the negative reinforcement associated with the food you're craving. And that is why there's a negative association with hunger and cravings, which I think is super interesting, okay? Uh, stress physiology, negative moods, mood regulation and distractions, all those things work together and that's why you're more likely to overeat on a food you crave when your hunger is low. Blows my mind, like when I, it's just laid out so plainly like that. And uh, intense cravings deviate from most normal hunger experiences for the reasons I just stated. It's because food cravings are strongly associated with your mood, with your mood, rather than your physiological state. Does your physiological state impact your mood? Maybe. Um, but the cravings are strongly associated with how you feel. And that, that, uh, that ends up closing out my extremo hour-long rant on the soft science of hard cravings. A hilarious amount of time and energy went into that, like <laughs> probably close to 50 hours. So I hope you guys enjoyed that crazy rant I did. I will be back with relatively normal scheduled programming very soon. I love you all. Thank you so much for stopping by and, and paying attention. Let me know what you guys think. Again, I'll be back very soon. Want to continue having coffee with Dr. Kashi? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is very much appreciated. Thank you. And see you next week. Dr. Cashy is out. <laughs>